Well, good morning, church. I wonder if the preacher's allowed a pulpit in Hope Church. Is that a possibility? That might be helpful. I trust you've had a good week. Uh, I've had an interesting week this week. It started off a bit, um, a bit dubiously. We had our chickens escape on Monday, and so I got the call uh, late Monday afternoon saying, Stu, you've got to come home. The chickens have escaped. If any of you have seen Chicken Run, you'll know the drama. And uh, it was very amusing because when I got uh, home, there were some of the chickens were up on the neighbor's garage and Pete was out there with an umbrella. Not sure what he was planning to do with the umbrella. If you thought that was bad enough, Mary was out there with a cricket bat. <laughs> I asked her, what are you planning to do, Mary? Are you going to on-drive the chicken back into the chicken coop? I'm not sure. But anyway, it got, the week got better, I can say. The week got better. Carlos and I headed up to Christchurch. We had some training on Thursday uh, around worship. And, um, and then on Friday, we had the Oakley Midwinter Dinner, which is always a great celebration in the Oakley household. So it sort of started down here, and the week ended up to there. During the week, I received a book in the mail from Rod Dreyer, and it's a book that's called The Benedict Option. Has anybody heard of The Benedict Option? It's an interesting book. Uh, I'm about three chapters in, and I can't say exactly what it's about, but I think the thesis of the book is that Western culture is in such a state that if the Christian church is going to be faithful, they're going to have to do some radical steps, take some radical steps along the lines of what happened in the 6th century when Benedict called men and women together together. Uh, out of the world to pray and to seek their, um, their roots, I guess, if you like, in Christ. Now, five years ago, I would have said, I would have dismissed this theology five years ago. Today, I'm not so quick to dismiss the call to withdraw uh, to then engage with culture. Uh, there are clear instructions in the New Testament that come to come out from a sinful world. For example, 2 Corinthians 6.17, Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Over the last 10 weeks, uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, over the last 10 weeks, we've been journeying through the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter keeps urging us to be living as foreigners and exiles, aliens and strangers. And so that whole call to acknowledge that something's going on around us in this pagan culture that we have to be very careful with if we're to be faithful. Uh, this culture is not our home. This culture is alien to the ways of Christ. But does that mean we're called to be monks and nuns? I'm not so sure about that. After all, didn't Jesus pray that we are in the world, but not of the world? And that's perhaps the biggest challenge for you and I today, isn't it? The biggest challenge for us to be faithful. Uh, what does it mean to be distinct from the world? After all, we've heard over the last few weeks that we're called to be holy. We're called to be separate from this culture that we live in, but to take Jesus' command to go and make disciples and to engage with the world. How do we get that balance right? Well, that's what we're learning about in First Peter. 
in a culture, in a pagan culture of shame and despair, it's easy for us to lose heart. But this morning, I want to share a word of encouragement today. I want to reveal to us the reason for hope. And that's what Peter's telling us this morning, that we have a reason for hope. So let's just pause for prayer. Father, we thank you for your words. And uh, thank you for what we've already heard from your word. Help us now as we dig a little bit deeper into this word to hear that word of hope that comes from you. Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. So turn with me if you've got your Bibles handy. And uh, I'm reading from chapter 3. And I'm going to read a couple of verses earlier than where we started from verse 12 in chapter 3, First Peter. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Somebody said to me a few weeks ago, they said to me, Stu, we're in a state of shock. We're in a state of shock. We can't believe the changes that have happened in our culture over the last couple of years, let alone the last 10 years. We're in a state of shock. And, and I think that's true for many Christians today living in this age that we live in. But Peter needs to be heard again when he says, don't be frightened. Don't be, be frightened. Whatever governments can pass in law, when they pass laws that are going to legalize the killing of the elderly. When the corporations around us flex their ideological muscle and say, you can't uh, say your religious convictions publicly, Peter says to us, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened by what you see about what's going on. Don't fear their threats, but rather, Peter says, you're actually blessed. You who are following the Lord Jesus, you are actually blessed, as Peter is saying here this morning. Don't be frightened. In the same way that Jesus could say back in Matthew 5, remember, in the Sermon of the Mount, blessed are you when people insult you, falsely accuse you, when you're called a homophobe, when you're called an Islamophobe, whatever the label that is thrown at you. Peter would say this morning, just as Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, don't be afraid because actually you're blessed. Actually, you're living in a blessed state if you're in the kingdom of God. Don't be afraid this morning. If you're doing good, Peter says, in a pagan culture, if you're doing good in the name of Jesus, you can expect to cop some flack. You can expect to suffer. That's the journey of our Savior. So don't think you've got a different journey to our Savior. You're going to expect to receive some opposition and indeed, you're going to expect to receive suffering. Don't be afraid, Peter says. You're actually in a blessed state. Then he goes on in verse 15, and this is perhaps the most well-known verse in all of First Peter's letter. Verse 15, look at it. We're going to dig deep into this one. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. 
Now, this verse has been used and framed for many an evangelistic ministry, many an apologetic ministry. Ravi Zacharias uses this verse to shape his ministry and has done for many, many years, and rightly so. In your hearts, Peter says, revere Christ as Lord. Literally, consecrate or make holy the Lord Jesus. In your heart, Peter is saying, set apart Christ. Make him holy, that's what the word means, make him holy, set him apart as Lord of your life. And because we've settled in our hearts, who's in charge, and it's not us, when we've settled in our hearts that Christ is in charge, when Christ is our Lord, then of course there is no need, there is no grounds for us to be afraid, Peter is saying. Set him apart as Christ, as Lord. He is your master. The one who reigns in heaven over all of creation is also reigning in your heart. So don't be afraid. There's no need to be afraid, Peter is saying. Remember three weeks ago, for those of you who are here, Peter instructed his slaves to submit to their masters. Well, now Peter is saying, Jesus is your master. Set him apart as Lord, as your master and that means and implies, of course, you're submitting to him. When the world tells you one thing and Jesus tells you another, Peter is saying here, we obey Jesus because he is Lord of our heart and that's where all our decisions get first made. Set apart, make holy Christ as Lord in your heart. And then he goes on to say, always be prepared to give an answer. Be ready to make a defense, apologia. And that's where the ministry of apologetics comes from that word. Make a defense for the reason that you have the hope for. It's a legal understanding. It's a legal word. Giving evidence, being a witness. And notice that you're prepared for this. Always be prepared to give a defense. You're not going to be found unprepared. The follower of Christ is prepared to give an answer for the hope that he has or she has within her, in you. A number of you people here uh, this morning uh, have given testimony, public testimony, either here or in the town hall, and, and you were prepared. If you talk to Sally, or you talk to Joan, or you talk to Emma, and they've given public testimony to what Christ has been doing in their lives, you'll ask them, well, they probably sweated a bit over that. They took time to prepare. Now, Peter's not talking about standing up in front of a crowd of people here, but he is saying, you're going to be ready. When somebody asks you for the reason that you have hope in your heart, you're not going to stutter and stammer and say, well, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I just, I, I. You've spent time thinking about it, Peter is saying. What is your journey thus far? Why have you got hope in your heart? You've sat down prayerfully with God, and you are not un prepared. You are ready to give an account, to give a defense, to be a witness to anybody who asks you why you've got hope in your heart. Is that you this morning? Are you prepared when somebody asks you, why are you living the life that you're living? Why is it when you're coming into all sorts of hardships and struggles and frustrations, but there's still a settled peace, there's still a hope in your heart? Why is that? Are you ready to give that answer? That's what Peter's encouraging us this morning. Always be prepared, he says, to give an answer 
for the hope that you have within you. Before I came to faith, I was involved in a relationship with a woman called Steph. And we were traveling around Europe and uh, we got to Munich and we had a major dust up and it's a long story, I won't go into the long story, I'll, the short story is I'd probably spent too much time at the Munich Beer Festival, but the upshot of it was the next morning I was driving Steph to the airport and she was flying home to New Zealand and I and my brother carried on to London. A few short months after that, I got involved in a church in London and I came to the place of saying, I can't do this any longer, God. I can't make sense of my life and I went along to the church and I gave my life to the Lord Jesus. I set apart Christ as Lord of my life. Then began this incredible adventure of the next six months of learning what it meant to follow Christ. And then I got back to New Zealand and within about 12 months, I caught up with Steph again. And we sat down at a cafe in Auckland and it was a little cafe on the waterfront called Hammerheads. And she was asking me, what, what's been going on? And I said, you're not gonna believe this. But after we split up, I went back to London and I went to a little church and I got to know God and I was introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will not believe, Steph, the difference it's made in my life. And she could see the difference in my life. And as I was sharing the hope that I had in my heart, the joy that in my, I had in my heart, I could see that Steph was just being powerfully impacted by the hope that I was sharing. She had tears running down her face. And I knew God was doing something, and I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to do at that point, but I knew that I had to share the hope that I had in my heart. Was I prepared? I'm not sure. Was I encouraged to, to share the, the joy and the hope that I had in Christ? Absolutely. And so I just kept sharing, and she kept crying, and I said, I, said, I don't know what's going on. What's going on for you? And she said, I don't know, I don't know. And I said, I, I think God wants you to know this hope. And you can know this hope today. We're in this very public setting in this public cafe. And I said, well, we're not going to pray here. I wouldn't do that now. But I took her out the back of the cafe and she set apart Christ as Lord of her life there and then. Are you prepared to share the reason that you have the hope in your heart? Peter says, always be prepared to share the reason you have the hope for you. And then when you do that, you let God take care of the next step. It's not up for you to bring or usher people into the kingdom of God. That's God's business. But your business is to be prepared to share the reason that you have the hope today. Always be prepared, Peter is saying. And then he goes on to say, but do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. And that's why social media is a difficult platform for evangelism because truth told in a 20-word Facebook post or an Instagram post is often not heard as gentle or respectful. I think we can and we should be sharing our faith in every opportunity that God gives us, including public media. We should be doing that. But we need to hear Peter's words that we need to do it with gentleness and respect wherever we do it whether it's face-to-face, -face, online, or otherwise. What's the reason for your hope? 
What's the reason that you have hope? And you say to me this morning, Stu, I'm not sure that I've got hope in my heart. But if you have, are you prepared to explain the reason for the, for the hope that you have? What is the reason for the hope that you have this morning? If there's one thing that our culture is desperately seeking, it's thirsting for hope. We live in a culture that is without hope, and there's many reasons for that. But if there is one thing that our culture wants and needs and is thirsting for, it's hope. It's the absence of hope in our culture that is causing so much sickness and so much pain and so much heartache and so much death. What's the reason for hope? Let me give you two reasons this morning for the hope that I have in my heart. The two reasons that I have hope in my heart this morning, firstly, it's purpose, and secondly, it's promise. I have hope in my life because of purpose and because of promise. God's purpose and God's promise to me and to you. That's the reason that I have hope. Let me explain that. Let's turn back to chapter 1 in 1 Peter. Chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We have a living hope, which means we have a purpose in life for today. God has given us a purpose for today, but he's also given us a promise. He's given us an inheritance that's kept in heaven that will be given to us in the fullness of time. We have purpose and we have a promise and that's the reason that we have hope. All of us have a purpose. As image bearers of the king, we are called to reflect his glory to a hurting and broken world. But more than that, specifically, you have a unique purpose. And it's the absence of that understanding of what my purpose in life that is causing so many people in our culture to unravel at the edges. You have a unique purpose that God has created you for. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. It's the plans that God has for you. It's the purpose that God has for you that gives you a hope. And that hope is for today, and Jeremiah says in chapter 29, it's also for a future. But to step into that plan is going to take a profound step of faith where you say, Lord Jesus, I want to know this purpose, so I'm willing to surrender it all to allow you to be master and Lord. I'm willing to set apart Christ as holy in my heart. I'm willing for you to be master. Show me what your purpose is. That should be all of our prayers. <clears throat> Please note that this purpose of God, that God is calling into you, is not a life without suffering. Would somebody be able to grab me a glass of water, please? Sorry. Please note that as we've journeyed through this letter, Peter is saying this purpose that God has for you is not without suffering. It's not without struggle. It's not without conflict. God has a purpose for you, but in the context of this broken world, that purpose is going to cause conflict because this world doesn't want to know it. It doesn't want to know you. 
Thank you, brother. God has a plan and a purpose for you, and it might involve some suffering, and it might involve some struggle. But that's the first step of knowing your hope, knowing what your purpose is, what your God-given purpose is. But the second reason that I have a hope this morning is because of the promise, the promise that God has given to me. And this is an eternal promise. My purpose is to be worked out here on this earth, extending God's kingdom, engaging with God's kingdom and sharing that kingdom with a broken world. But I have been given a promise, you have been given a promise that stretches into eternity. Excuse me. <coughs> Resurrection life begins the moment in repentance and faith you come to Christ. That's beginning now and that stretches into eternity. God's Holy Spirit raises you to new life. This salvation, Peter reminds us, kept in heaven will be fully imparted to you upon your physical death or upon the Lord Jesus' return to earth when you will be clothed with the same type of heavenly body that Jesus was clothed with after his resurrection. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up. You will be clothed with a heavenly body, the same body that, the, that Christ Jesus was clothed with on his resurrection. That's the inheritance. In the fullness of time, these frail bodies that we are clothed in today will be clothed with an immortal body at the resurrection in those last days. Those of you who are in Christ will be resurrected to an eternal life and those who are not will be cast into eternal fire. The promise that God has given to me is when I set apart Christ as Lord in my life at the resurrection in those last days, I will be clothed with an immortal body, a resurrection body. This is the hope that I have. It's the only hope that you have as you place your trust in the loving care of Christ Jesus. And as Peter has shown us, Jesus has made a way for us to do that with absolute confidence. He has made a way for you. Look at verse 18, back in chapter 3. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirits. For those of you who were here three weeks ago, I spoke about the great exchange. And Peter's talking about it here again, this great exchange where the righteous suffered so that we, the unrighteous, could know eternal life. In chapter 2, Peter gives a fuller account of the atoning work of Christ. And by this I mean the process by which sin is forgiven, your sin and my sin is forgiven, the atoning work of Christ. One of the great lies of the devil is to lead you down this path of abandon where you embrace everything that the world gives you. You embrace the drugs, you embrace the drink, you embrace the illicit relationships, you embrace all the ideology that the world can give you, and all of a sudden you wake up and you're in those broken relationships and you're in this place of bondage 
And God would say to you, and now, now I have made a way for you to be free from that bondage. There is a great exchange where you can exchange your unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ. Peter talks about it so beautifully as we heard a few weeks ago in chapter 2 verse 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Have you died to sin in your life? Have you experienced that great exchange that Peter is talking about where your unrighteousness is given up at the cross so that you can be clothed with the righteousness of Christ? Have you made that great exchange? Do you know the hope of the promise of this eternal life that God holds out to us in Christ? Or is compromise with the world something you're all too familiar with? Have you been enticed by the world and the lies of the enemy? And so you find yourself in that place of bondage, that place of compromise. Here's the profoundly good news that God holds out to us this morning. By the wounds of Jesus Christ, you can be healed. In fact, Peter says, you are healed. When you come to the cross by his wounds, you are healed. As you step into eternity, the promise of eternity becomes yours. Even though you are clothed in these frail bodies now, when you step into the kingdom of God, you step into eternity, and the promise of eternity is yours. That's the hope that I share this morning. A purpose for today and a promise for eternity. But first you've got to come to the cross. You've got to acknowledge your need. First you have to come and say, I am unrighteous. I come with dirty, filthy hands. My heart is not clean, Lord. But when you come in humility and in repentance, the promise of God this morning is that I will offer you a great exchange your unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ. That's yours. That's the hope that we share in this morning. Purpose for today and promise for tomorrow. Church, we've been hearing a lot over the last 11 weeks about this call to live as foreigners and exiles. We don't live as though we are natives of New Zealand. We don't live our lives as if this is our home. Peter would say it's not. In 1986, a few men were on the beach of San Francisco. They gathered around and two men in particular built up an effigy of a man. And then they set fire to it. And all of a sudden, the crowd gathered around, and they thought this was such a great lark, they're going to do it again the next year, and they're going to do it again in the next year. 
And so an annual festival emerged, and it's a festival called the Burning Man Festival. If you're familiar with this festival, you'll know that its roots are thoroughly pagan. And all that that picture symbolizes, that picture behind me, says so much about our culture today. It is a growing pagan culture that we live in. And the man is burning in flames. It became so popular in California that they shifted it out to Nevada. They shifted it out to the desert in Nevada. And now 60 or 70,000 people will flock to this festival. It's got 10 principles. Two of the principles at the center of it are radical self-reliance and radical self-expression. Radical self-reliance and radical self-expression. If that doesn't explain what our culture is about today, I don't know of anything that does thoroughly pagan and so they light the fire it's sitting on a base and that's a shrine that's a temple underneath it and man is getting burnt and they worship at the temple this burning man festival folks that's the culture that you and i are living in right now you could take that off thanks rob that's the culture that you and i live in right now we've built the shrine on self-reliance on self-expression and we've excluded God from the equation. And you wonder and ask me, why is there no hope? Why is there sickness? And why are we looking to euthanize and abort? And why there is a culture of death? Well, because we've turned our back on God. But I'm here to say that you and I have a hope. We have a reason for the hope that's within us. And the reason that I have hope is because I know that God has given me a purpose and I know that God has given me a promise. God has given you a purpose, and God has given you a promise. The purpose is this purpose for you and I to walk in the truth of the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in that now, to extend his kingdom, to be his agents of change. And you have a specific purpose as an individual. But more than that, we have a promise. And it's an eternal promise. The eternal promise is that when you step into the kingdom of God, your life makes a difference for the today. But in the fullness of time, in eternity, you will be clothed with a heavenly body and you will see Christ face to face. And every tear will be stripped away. Every disease, every sickness, everything that is not of God will be banished and we will worship for eternity. That's the promise that you and I have this morning. Church, when somebody comes up to you this week and says, what's going on in your life? I want you to be prepared. I want you to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. I don't know what your exact purpose is. I've spoken about the general purpose of all and every follower of Christ Jesus. But you need to know what your purpose is. You need to get on your knees and say, Lord, show me what it is. What is my purpose? Why are you calling me? What do I have to offer to this broken, burning world? You need to know that purpose. But secondly, and perhaps most importantly, you need to know the promise that when you put your trust, when you set apart Christ as Lord, when you make holy Christ in your heart, when you consecrate Christ as Lord and Master, His promise is that He will be with you and you will be with Him not just today, but for into eternity. What's the reason that you have the hope for? Let's be prepared to give an answer. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer.
Father, we thank you for the journey that you're taking us on. We thank you for the word that you are sharing with us. We thank you for the life-giving word that you hold out to us in our Lord Jesus. We thank you for this promise of the great exchange, this incredible exchange where our unrighteousness can be exchanged for the righteousness of Christ. And when we're clothed with your righteousness, Lord Jesus, our purpose is transformed by the glory of your kingdom, by you reigning in our lives. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here, perhaps for those who are struggling to know what their purpose is. Perhaps they've never even come to a saving relationship with you. By your grace, would you minister salvation here in this place today? But more than that, Lord, would you impart a revelation of your purpose for, for us as individuals, for us as a church, for the body of hope? Lord, show us what it means to be people of hope in a culture that is without hope. But more than that, Lord, today, burn in our hearts by the fire of your Spirit that wonderful, joyful understanding that you have promised when we put our trust in you, when we come in repentance and faith, you have an eternal promise for us, a promise that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. Father, would you minister this truth to us? Would you grant us the grace this week as we go out and as we engage in our different avenues and our different places? Lord, give us that boldness to give an account for the hope that we have within us. Help us to be gentle. Help us to be respectful, but God, would we be bold in our witness to you. You know the plans. You know the purposes you have for us, Lord, and they're plans for good. They're a future of hope. Lord, fill us with your hope this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.